Promise No Promises Feminism Under Corona Episode 8 Feminism Starts in Home Kitchens The podcast Promise No Promises now continues with a special Feminism Under Corona chapter. Over the next few months, 10 episodes arise from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different artistic disciplines and areas of research and life practice. Beyond simple answers or solutions, this series of personal conversations is an attempt to point out different directions, feelings, expectations, sequels and individual stories in times of the recent crisis provoked by COVID-19. It is also a tool for a collectively inhabited feminism, when not only gender, class and race imbalances are being reinforced, but are even becoming more visible in the current situation. The AIDS episode is the result of an audio epistolary conversation with Silvia Aguero Fernandez that afterwards was translated also in fragments, by Ainoa Nedia Duhevi Arasola. On her Twitter account, Sylvia introduces herself as follows. Mother, gitana, mestiza, feminist, worker in my home. In the ghetto, I discovered my Roma identity. Outside the ghetto, I discovered anti-Roma harassment. Ainoa is a social educator and co-author of the book The Radicalization of Racism. Islamophobia and the Prevention of Terrorism from 2019. I got to know Sylvia thanks to Twitter. Almost at the same time, a friend recommended me the website of the project she runs together with Nicolás Jiménez González, Pretendemos Gitanizar el Mundo. The name could be translated as We Intend to Make the World Romany. This lifetime project was born for many reasons including the general ignorance of and the lack of knowledge about the history of the Romani people. Pretendemos Gitaniza el Mundo is a valuable archive and process where Silvia and Nicolas create and share a counter-narrative to fight structural and cultural anti-Gitanismo. As a specific form of racism against the Roma, anti-Gitanismo is not only condoned but also trivialized. Their project, which was launched together with a love story and has since then spread to many other places, proposes an in-depth study throughout numerous articles of scientific, historical and cultural popularization, while also providing support for institutions and associations that want to fight against anti-Roma harassments. In the particular case of Romani women, anti-Gitanismo is merged with structural patriarchy. As Sylvia herself tells throughout our correspondence and in many of the articles she writes, feminism has always existed among Romani women. It is part of a tradition of its own with centuries of history. Historical references are fundamental and it is important to make them present again and again. But feminism is born and lived in the kitchen of homes and within families, while cooking, while cleaning. It is a box of tools, values and struggles that are transmitted from women to women through emotional proximity and by ways of living together. The leader's narrative, 
very present in feminism, creates a her story that makes invisible the work and daily forms of resistance of so many women throughout history. The narrative of the waves, also very celebrated within the discourse of feminism, draws a linear understanding where one moment replaces another. But an attentive understanding of the tidal movement of waves tells us something very different. The water takes on many forms which coexist and work at the same time. Within those forms, there has been the feminism of Romani women for centuries, which is an ongoing collective anti-racist and anti-capitalist resistance. The conversation with Silvia Aguero Fernandez, translated by Ainoa Nedia Duhevi Arasola, took place in November 2020. First, we had a digital meeting, but then we decided together to create an epistolary correspondence by audio notes. Silvia was first in La Rioja and then in Valencia, in a process of moving during the second confinement of the pandemic in Spain. Ainoa was in Barcelona and I was in Berlin. The pandemic began with a deceptive official narrative that strategically avoided all the intersections and violence that already existed before the current crisis, but which instead have been further reinforced through it. The rules imposed during the confinement have at no point taken into account the particularities and vital needs of many idiosyncrasies and individuals. In the case of the Roma people, restrictions on their traditional professions, itinerant trade, open-air markets and artistic creation have left many people without work, income and food. And it is seriously affecting the economic freedom of Romani women. Meanwhile, shopping centers and other businesses remain open, even when we know scientifically that it happens in closed spaces that most viral contagion occurs. The lack of political support and understanding of the Romani idiosyncrasies has led to the creation of different networks between platforms and members of the Roma, of which Silvia, Nicolás and Pretendemos Gitanisa El Mundo are active members. As she writes in one of her articles published in Picara magazine, the Roma insurrection is the ultimate resistance to the established system. It is my alternative to a world, to a system of thought, economy and society that others have established. It is interesting how they always ask me about this autobiographic sentence that I have, right? The sentence goes that in the ghetto I discovered my Romaniness and out of the ghetto I discovered what anti-gypsy harassment was. Truth is, 
that is like that. I mean, I discovered the real dimension, like the structural dimension of anti-Gypsyism when I was outside the ghetto, not so much when I was inside of it. I mean, it's not that inside the ghetto you don't suffer from anti-Gypsyism, right? But I was definitely not so aware of it, at least at that time. I always use the same story to explain how I discovered my Romaniness, anti-Gypsyism, or even sexist anti-Gypsyism, right? I'm referring to the intersection between anti-Gypsyism and patriarchy. I went to Paris with my Romani husband on our honeymoon, and we went to the Louvre Museum, my husband and I. I always say in my workshops that one day I will write a book that is titled Two Gitanos en el Louvre. I use the word gitano to describe Spanish Romani people. Maybe that'll be easier from now on. But anyway, I'll write a book that's called Two Gitanos en el Louvre. And when I tell this in my workshops, people usually laugh, laugh at this comment. And if you realize even these giggles, this laugh is actually quite anti-gypsy, right? But anyway, there we were, my husband and I, looking at a painting from Caravaggio. Caravaggio's painting that was called La Buenaventura, I think it was. The painting is actually really nice. There is a woman, it's a Romani woman. She has her hair put up in a traditional way. In Spanish, this traditional Gitano hair touch is called Berno or Rodela. And there was also this young man from the time with a hat and a feather and so. Under the painting, there was this little piece with an art critique. And on that piece, right under the painting, right in the Louvre Museum, the piece quoted textually that this uh, young Gitana woman, gypsy woman, was stealing from this elegant young man, right? She was stealing his ring. And that was so revealing to me because in this painting where there's not even a ring, suddenly I was aware of the dimension of anti-gypsyism. How could that be? I mean, there's not even a ring. This man, this young guy does not even have a ring. And just because she is a Romani woman, a Gitana, the description is the Gitana is stealing the ring from him. about sexist anti-gypsyism or patriarchal anti-gypsyism or the answer to that which is gypsy feminism right or romani feminism i learned about that when i gave birth to my children i had a really harsh time when i gave birth to my child miguel my boy miguel i suffered from obstetric violence and pure anti-gypsyism in the health system right i had contractions i arrived to the hospital Just imagine the situation. You are arriving to the hospital and you are hurting because you're having your first contractions. You are hurting and it's your first pregnancy and you're there with all your fears and your happiness. All these emotions are exploding. 
supposed to be or it should be like one of the most marvelous times or moments in your life, right? You arrive there and you imagine the first thing the nurse said to me, she said, oh, because the Gitana is a Romani woman, you married too early, you married too young. And from there on, everything just went down. And she would say things like, how did you not realize that your water broke? And I had had a fissure in the amniotic sac. So I didn't realize that my water broke. Even in my next labor with Carmen Manuela, I also suffered from obstetric violence because everybody would tell me that it was absolutely impossible to give birth naturally after having a cesarean section. In the middle of contractions, suddenly the midwife was asking me where I was from. She was like, but where are you from? And I was like, I don't know, from here? And she would go like, but from here, from here, from Alicante, because like your face looks like Pakistani. And I was, well, I don't know, I'm Romani, I am Gitana. That was also one of the circumstances where I realized about anti-gypsyism patriarchy. To what extent that the intersection between racism and patriarchy can come to. the question about the relation between Romaniness and feminism often is a question that I am often asked about, right? And so I think it is as natural or, or as normal as of any other woman that is crossed by or suffers from any other oppression other than sexism that can be, I don't know, racism, homophobia, transphobia. So this is normal in Romani women. And this has always been the tradition. My grandmother always told me, you must be happy, you must fight for your happiness. And it doesn't really matter what anybody else has to say about it. This has always been the tradition. The Gitana uh, grandmothers have always told us that. My grandmother would tell me, you should not put up with a man that is not good. You must be happy. I was talking with my sister-in-law the other day and she was telling me that her mother had always told her you should not depend on anybody. You should take out your driving license soon and that you should not depend on any man, not even economically. And when I mean economically, I mean that, that we shouldn't even depend on a boss, like a work boss or anything like that. If you stop to think about it, it's quite an anti-capitalist way of thinking. So yeah, they would tell us, take out your driving license soon enough so that you don't have to depend on anybody. You have to learn how to make your way through, how to work, how to sell, so that you don't have to depend on anybody. Not a man, not a husband, not a boss, if you don't need to. So yeah, I think the relation between feminism and Romaniness is natural and has always been. But for some reason, the Gacha people, non-Roma people, payos we call them in Spanish, you know, the white non-Gitano people, see this strangely. Because I think feminism right now is like bourgeois or is like uh, from another social class. Even though we can see more and more intersectionality in feminism, dominant feminism is still a white, middle-class feminism. And that's the feminism that they have sold us. But our feminism and many other racialized women's feminism is another kind of feminism, is a feminism from the streets. It's a feminism of tradition, even a feminist tradition that we have received from our mothers, from our grandmothers. Again, this relation is very normal, is natural, is given time and time through. Anti-gypsyism in feminism is also normal.
The racism in feminist movements is a reality that we have to put up with day in, day through. Uh, many of us are racialized women, Romani women, Muslim women. They're just measuring us like every day, right? They have like this feminist meter or something like that to see how feminists we are or not. And they don't even realize that feminism was already in our lives. We don't need a feminist card. We don't need to go to academia to give conferences about this, which is okay. And obviously, it's okay. But we're talking about a feminism that is a pragmatic feminism. We put it in practice in every single thing we do, day by day, every day. persecution of Romani or Gitano people began in 1499 and in 1492 it was the first documentation of the arrival of Gitanas to European territories and during this time from 1492 to 1499 the historians the Gitanologists we can call them those white guys that study us as if we were butterflies pinned on the wall with thumbtacks they claimed that there was some kind of they would call it an idyllic period or idyllic time. I actually completely disagree with this statement because it doesn't seem right to me. There wasn't any idyllic period. I mean, the migrations occurred slowly and there was not enough gitanos and gitanas to say, okay, let's persecute them. So I don't really think there was an idyllic period. And the whole history is actually plagued by racism and a dirty look that Europe has always had ever since, well, it has had this look for a long time. The Great Raid occurred in 1749 after a lot of anti-Gitano pragmatics that were already trying to punish everything that represented or that meant to be Gitano. One of the first pragmatics, for example, said that you can't be walking together in groups of more than two or three Gitanos. And the Gitanas, the women in this case, said to like the officers who would be applying these restrictions or these pragmatics, these laws, they were like laws, that the rule or punishment couldn't apply to them because there were only two gitanas, two women and two men. What this means is that they made them legislate against women and children specifically in this case. I think this is actually important because I think we were one of the first women that tried to get them to legislate in a non-masculine generic way. So later after, all feminists have even made this invisible and ignored this issue. The Great Raid was carried out in secret with the approval of Felipe or the great-grandfather of the current king from the actual Spanish state, the Kingdom of Spain, as we call it here. And with the approval, of course, from all the engineering of Marquis of Ensenada. That was, we could say, the minister of everything, the president of the government from that time, similar to what is the president right now. And what they did was try to exterminate The Great Raid was an attempt at an extermination which they were not able to carry because of the intelligence and the fight that Gitanos and Gitanas had put. 
They separated women and men so they could not have bloodlines or they could have legacy. Children that were under seven years old had the same punishment as the men as they were sent to the galleys as punishment. The punishment which was rowing until exhaustion and building boats. And they made women, they obliged them to serve at like charity houses. Here they were called houses of misericordia. This led to the epistemicide of our language, which many times they say, no, Spanish gitanos and gitanas have lost their language. Language is not something that you lose, that is so easily forgotten. It was an epistemicide. They were able to do it. They got us to stop using our language because it had already been done, right? A whole lot of rules that punished everything that it meant to be gitano or gitana were already taking place from a long time ago how they dressed, how they talked, their jobs as well. The reading fortunes, their blacksmith jobs were prohibited. Everything was prohibited. And of course, this still continues. This harassment, this anti-Gitanism, we could call it, still continues today. Spain does not recognize the Gitano and the Gitana population as the people who most have to conform to the Spanish state. They don't recognize us as Spanish native people that have been here for hundreds of years. They don't recognize the Gitano flag. There is no protection for our remaining language, which is Caló, which is a, a Romani language mixed with old Spanish. They don't recognize absolutely anything. And it continues and it affects our daily lives because it's in the collective memory. After the Grand Raid, a lot of new laws were created that were anti-Gitano. The last law was repealed in the 1978 constitution. I mean, that is yesterday. That was one of the orders of the Spanish Civil Guard, which is the actual National Guard. And it was scrupulously and constantly monitoring Gitanos and Gitanas. We had to testify that, for example, if they stopped it, that everything that we had was ours, as in we didn't steal it. And there were even problems after that. They didn't want our children to be able to go to school. And now, I mean, it's the total opposite, right? They accuse us of not taking our children to school and they ask us, why aren't you taking your, our children to school, etc. Our collective memory continues. All this persecution and this collective trauma. Furthermore, anti-Gypsyism or anti-Gitanoism is a kind of structural and systemic racism, meaning it is consented to and allowed and promoted from the system and its institutions. They are the ones that are responsible for the situation of the Gitano population being so terrible in terms of poverty statistics, social exclusion, school failures, anti-Gitano violence from the police. It is brutal. And in fact, Europe has already called the attention of the Spanish government many times about the statistics that are coming out every year. And of course, they are all laws about integration. In fact, the plans that the government makes every four years are called integration plans. Yusuf, which is a friend and a brother, not personally, but from the struggle, has mentioned it many times, right? And it has a lot to do with the types of racism, anti-Gitano racism and racism that Muslims face or Afro-descendant or black people face are similar. We are all in the same struggle. Each one of us, each one of these people face specific kind of racism with its own specificities, but it's all very similar. It has to do with the structural racism. They want the same things. In the end, they want 
that we stop being ourselves, that we leave our identities behind to produce and work for capitalism and that way to make us useful for the system. The Gitano population is one of the last real alternatives of life in Europe that is fighting against the system. We don't want to integrate and it's something that all Gitanos and Gitanas do in our lives. They put us with obstacles and we remain intelligent when it comes not to mold ourselves to the system that is probably inhumane. Working 12 hours, leaving our children at school for who knows how many hours, not seeing them, paying more than 75% of our income just for housing, clothes, gas, transport. I mean, this is completely inhumane. Gitanicemos el mundo, or let's gitanosize the world, as in let's try to make the world more gitano, is a project that was born in a really special way. We love to explain where we come from, who we are, and why we do what we do. A situated knowledge is what it's called, what we're trying to do. The blog, gitanicemoselmundo.com, as I said before, it means trying to make the world more gitano, as well as the social organization that is called the same way, as well as the life project, in addition that we are leading, all have to do with our lives. Nicolás Jiménez, who is co-author to the blog and the association, was born in Vallecas, in Madrid, in a neighborhood called Pozo del Tierra y Mundo. This neighborhood, uh, we could call it a ghetto. This neighborhood has really been punished for poverty, for racism, etc., etc. And, well, he started going to school at 11 years old, mainly because his older sister was playing and as a joke brought him to school. And with a lot of effort and we could say enormous heroism, he finished his whole academic career. He is a sociologist, he has now a master of, in investigation of education. He works in many different things. He speaks many languages, he speaks and translates Romano, which is the language that Gitanos speak at the international level. Anyhow, he always says that the teachings that have more served him for earning a life have been given by the family and while working in the market. He, he always tells this story. And well, me as well. I was born in Vallecas, same neighborhood. I was raised in a Gajo family that had an anti-Gitano ideology. From when I was young, I knew that I was going to be a Gitana in a world of Gajo white people or non-Gitano people. We met in Granada and I fell in love. And on the same day, we got married. I always say, half joking, half serious, that activism unites us more than romantic love, actually. Activism unites us in many ways. What we have really created is a life project that, of course, includes the blog too, but mostly is a project of gitanicizing the world wherever we go. The blog started when I was pregnant with Carmen Manuela, who is our daughter. She is four years old. We got married like four and a half years ago. There's a lot of material that Nico shared on social media like Facebook, but didn't have a lot of impact. 
I didn't see that it had the influence in the dimensions I thought it should have. And well, we started with a blog. I was pregnant with Carmen Manuela. And well, we achieved writing the blog. And the truth is, it's having an enormous impact because it's Nico's work. It's Nico's own investigations. And later, I added some contributions with a feminist perspective and my own experience, obviously, which I think improved it since it's making such an impact that I not only write for Picara magazine, the feminist magazine that I work for, but also there are a lot of people that tell us, they ask about us about the blog, they share the blog, the blog is shared in schools, university, there are teachers using our material as teaching material for their classes. It's actually amazing the impact we're having. And in addition to this, about a year and a half ago, I shared something on Twitter about what we were trying to do. And then this racist person said to me, oh, there's another one coming here to write a book. To which a publisher actually responded by saying, yeah, this would be fantastic. Do you want to write a book? From there, we started to talk to this editorial that's called books.com. It's just about to come out. You can already reserve a copy and it's called Gitana Resistance. It's a book based on the blog where we talk about different kind of Gitana resistances. Gitana resistance, for example, from religion, like Chaya Stoika, who was a Gitana woman who suffered the Samudari pen. That is how the Gitano Holocaust is called in Romano. And many others like her that did heroisms after surviving the Holocaust of the Gitanos that happened in the Nazi Germany. From belief and faith, they have contributed a lot of culture inside the culture, also of, I don't know, paintings, poetry, art in general. We also talked a lot about women and men that have been erased from history and have contributed so much. And of course, they are gitanas and gitanas that should be there uh, in visible places and especially in school curriculums, teaching the materials that university use, practicing histories, sociology, anthropology, mathematics. There was a first mathematician woman who was called Sofia Kualinskaya, who was gitana. And she or any of them aren't in that history. Well, the book has also had a great reception. And now we are with a yearbook in paper. It's going to be called the same, Trying to Gitanizar el Mundo. Gitanicemos el Mundo. It's going to be in paper where there are going to be a lot of Gitano men and women writing from Colombia, from Romania. There will be an amazing opening debate in the magazine in which our cousin Elios Fernandez, Pastori Filigrana, will be writing about abolishing the police and how we can abolish the police and where we need to focus, what historical experience we can draw from the Gitano population. And to top off the debate, Ana Dalila Gomez Baos, who is a Colombian Gitana woman who speaks about how in Colombia they were able to achieve that the traditional method of justice be legal in Colombia because it's legal in Colombia. Like if you're a Gitana to pass through the Gitano system of justice and not the punitive justice system of the colonial state. I mean, it's legal in Colombia that if you're a Gitana to use the Gitano justice system and not to go to trial according to the Colombian state's criminal law. They accepted it legally. They are many more signatures, drawings, and a lot of illustrators that will be taking part, all Gitanos and Gitanas. And we believe it's so interesting.
gitanosize the world and let the world be gitanosized. I think we have a lot to offer and contribute. I think we have a lot to contribute to all the different struggles like anarchism or independentism or feminism, of course. But we think that to gitanicize yourself is a way to learn values, experiences that we have previously had to deal with and use them day in and day out to fight against this world that is more and more unhumane. To gitanicize yourself is this, is a way to humanize, uh, to go back to living, to the politics of life, so that you don't have to be working 16 hours a day or at least ask why. Maybe you don't end up working 16 hours, but to rethink it, why am I working 16 hours? If I spent, I don't know how much time or percentage of my life going to work and coming back, all kinds of alternatives to life, including nutrition, are also in the blog. There are recipes in the blog. Right now, we are in a collaborative process with another space in the media, in social media, that is called the Comidista, that is very famous here in the Spanish state. It's a section in the newspaper El País, which is a mainstream newspaper, and they want to write our recipes there. Well, in short, trying to gitanicize the world is our way of living and being in the world. Since March, I have been working in the Committee of Anti-Racist Emergencies that was created by a lot of women and men that were already in activism, such as associations and also individual activists. Of course, it was work that we did for free. We know that the pandemia, we knew since March that it was going to have a hard and a grave impact on Gitano people. Truth is, the committee has functioned very well, and it has been a great help to our communities. We had a money and food drive to gather resources. We put together a platform that in which Legal Sol has participated in, which is a group of lawyers that offer free legal advice, especially around the topic of police violence and abuse, the fines that they have been putting on people, complaints about neighbors, complaints from neighbors about children. We met a few Gitano families that have been reported because their neighbors said that their children were making a lot of noise in the middle of confinement. The thing is that I'm laughing because it really is mind-bending that people I mean, people have no humanity. Apart from that, apart from the food and money drive or, or the fundraiser that was important, because we know that social services was usually giving food or things like this, like rice, but they would never give fresh food, like vegetables and fruit. Or, and also for the cost of living, we wanted to give money to families and people that were having a really hard time. We found a lot of people in a situation of homelessness without housing. I think it was one of the worst problems that we have had. Many of us racialized people and we are continuing the work. We will have some events at the end of November, some internal events and some open to the public where we will talk about how it was to put together the committee. It will be in under a week. I mean, with people that we almost didn't know each other. Well, some of us we knew and some we didn't know at all.
the confinement for me was hard. I mean, many people complained that they were bored during confinement. I had no time to be bored. It was all day, every day, many situations of many different people in fragile moments of their life, in the street, without food, without being able to pay for rent, without electricity, without being able to pay for electricity. And that happened when they said they weren't going to cut off electricity, but they did anyways. There were even a lot of evictions just as the confinement ended, under the table without anyone finding out. So yeah, many situations. The truth is, it was amazing the work that we tried to do. I think that we are quite happy with the results. The coronavirus, this crisis is not only medical, but also social and economic that we are living. It has really affected uh, gitanos and gitanas in all parts of the world. I don't know if you have seen, in Europe, a lot of Gitano neighborhoods have been gassed. They have been gassed from planes. The camps during confinement were gassed. And we don't know up to one point the health of these Gitanas and Gitanos could have been affected. Things that don't happen in non-Gitano or white neighborhoods, right? Within the Spanish state, racism was first about persecuting people of Asian descent just after the Gitano populations. One of the first outbreaks was spread in Vitoria, in the Basque country, in a burial. Of course, a lot of Gitanos and Gitanas arrived for the burial from Rioja, which is another region that is beside that one from Spain. One of the first big outbreaks was in Aro, a village in the Rioja. I was living there and it was very, very hard to see how they attacked children and youth on Instagram, on Twitter and social networks. I mean, their own friends or classmates that would tell them, we don't want gitanos, we don't want to see you in school anymore because you brought the coronavirus. It was really hard to see how they insulted gitano people as if the virus didn't affect us when a lot of gitanos and gitanas have died in La Rioja. It's been especially hard because the first thing that they closed were the mercadillos, which are the markets at open air when the shopping centers remained open. Right now, the exact same thing is happening, despite that we have more scientific evidence of how the virus is contracted. There is more scientific evidence in respect to the infectation via aerosols, enclosed spaces, in poorly ventilated spaces. And even so, the restrictions for the traditional jobs or the traditional trade of gitano, which is, you know, the mobile market, are stricter than shopping centers or big chains that sell clothes or the big chain stores that sell food. It's harder for Gitano people and even more for racialized people because even though markets have been a Gitano work tradition like forever, the markets are full of racialized people whose main work is this. It's been really hard because we are freelancers, we could say, and we cannot access to the state subsidies in pandemic crisis because it's not an officially recognized work niche. It's not like formal work, quote, obviously. In the previous confinement, for example, they weren't giving us enough to live to feed our children. 
it's something that the government didn't take into consideration. We had the platform Rosa Cortez and the Federation of Gitano Association in La Rioja and our project uh, try to gitanizar the world. I mean, we try to explain to non-gitano people in charge and the government, in the local governing, that the gitano people couldn't be confined for two days because by the second day, they were without food. They didn't contemplate this because poverty was extreme before COVID and now it's even worse. We don't have enough resources to be confined for a month without being able to go and sell and have food to eat. We don't have enough to eat day after day. And it's really hard to see how the people governing haven't contemplated the idiosynchronicities of Gitano people. The way that Gitano people live and furthermore the social exclusion that comes from anti-Gitanism. That was already there and that is already there. In the end, in La Rioja, it was, it was very good. It was okay because they realized after a lot of explaining and they started to bring food to the Gitanos and Gitanas from the Red Cross. But at the beginning, it came out of our own pockets. We had to buy and pay bags of food and bring them to the people that were infected with COVID and leave them at their doors because the children didn't have anything to eat. Right now, I don't know how the course of this is going to continue. But even not only markets, but renowned flamenco artists don't have anything to survive with because culture is something that is also being left behind. Theater, everything that has to do with culture and cante, which is flamenco singing, that also give work to people. I mean, that also give work to Gitano because a lot of people who work in this field are also Gitano. They are being left behind. It's really hard to see how they don't offer any help for them. The Gitana women also tell me, and this has a lot to do with Gitana feminism. I mean, women, the Gitana women have always been owners of our money. We have always have taken care of the money. We have always gone out to sell. And now the fact that we can't sell, this is taken away from the emancipation of our women because we don't have enough money for our things. And the way that we go out and sell things and have our money is being left behind, is being forgotten about, and it's hard. The Gitano women tell me it's really hard because they used to be able to pay for, I don't know, for the little things, for whatever they wanted, if they wanted to do their nails or buy lipstick or, I mean, eat, it doesn't really matter, or to buy potatoes, and now they don't have that freedom. It's actually really hard. Romani is the international language of the Gitano population and it's a language that comes from the family of Indo-European languages or that's what Gajo academics say, that's what white academics say. Recent investigations about the language say what region approximately we came, we started from, we came from the Gitanos from the first Indian diaspora and it's from Canaus, that it's in the Uttar Pradesh and Canaus in the times of first immigration was well known for being the cradle of artists, scholars and perfumes also.
the Gitanos and Gitanas in the Spanish state, we don't speak Romani. I am very lucky for Nico because he speaks Romani. He translates and he is very interested in it. He went to France to study with a professor and now he gives classes in France in the Sorbonne University of Paris. He transmitted his love and this love of the language to me. In the end, I yearn for a language that I don't even know anything about. And the most beautiful thing of this is a little anecdote that I have that is very beautiful. When we went to India last year, which commemorated the first millennial of the exodus of the Indian diaspora, a lot of Gitanos and Gitanas from all around the world went. They came from Colombia, from Germany, Serbia, Canada, and from many countries around the world. And they all understood each other in Romani because there were Gitano people that didn't speak English, but they could all understand each other in Romani. And I was the only one who didn't speak Romani. I mean, during a week, I was able to learn a lot of words that sounded familiar to me because, you know, they're really there in your collective memory. And you only need to awaken this memory, right? That's what Nico always tells me, that you have it within you, that it's there with you, that you just need to awaken it. In the end, a lot of words that are in Caló, that Romani language that Gitanos from Spain use, have their own roots in Romani. So only some of the pronunciation changes. And it is precious to see how we could understand each other. This wouldn't happen if they weren't Gitanos. It is amazing to see this. I mean, to hear Nico sing Carmen Manuela lullabies in Romani is just a treasure. There are a lot of writers who have written in Romani and singers like Vera Vila that have sung in Romani and they are just beautiful. I really recommend you to listen to music in Romani and try to look for books that are bilingual. No? In this case, it would be Spanish and Romani. For example, Raiko Yurik, Without House and Without a Tom, that Nico has translated and it's in bilingual edition, in this case, in Spanish. They're always asking me about references within the Gitana or Romani community. And they always wait for me to say, I don't know, Sofia Kovaletskaya, who was the first European Gitana woman who went to university, who became a well-known mathematician, or Panafinka, a Hungarian who designed the uniform for the Hungarian military nowadays, right? I mean, I can think of so many more. Rosa Cortez, who was a Gitana woman from Almería, who was 27 years old when she led the escape of 53 Gitanas from the Great Raid. I can always think of so many to talk about, and it's really important to make them visible. But really, the woman that I admire, the Gitana woman that I admire, that have helped me through and with my feminist thought, with my feminist action that have helped me to be a feminist. And of course, they helped or they fueled my Romaniness, my, my Gitanidad. They are my grandma, my mother-in-laws, my sister-in-laws, my cousins, actually all of these. And this is really important. I think that feminism is brewed in the house kitchens, actually. 
when making a traditional Gitano stew on Christmas Eve, a dish that is a mix of white beans, chickpeas, and it's cooked with a lot of vegetables. And when it's just about to be finished, you add some cod. And with the same cod, you crumble it and you add some of the broth from the stew and some breadcrumbs. And you make these fried meatballs, a kind of fried bread. It's delicious. Um, this is something Gitanos eat on Christmas Eve. I saw my grandma doing this and scolding the children and the men. And when she hit the table, nothing would move. I mean, not even the clocks. My grandma has been the fundamental pillar in my life. And my mother-in-law, rest in glory. They are the ones that helped me with most of the feminist thoughts. And maybe you don't even realize that until you are older. And you say, damn, yeah. Of course, it helped me to read Simone de Beauvoir. But then there's my mother. Moreover, I think we're forgetting to demystify like romantic love uh, relationships and really capitalism and this system that is sexist and racist and that is always demanding individualism. So for me, family is the basic pillar of feminism and anti-racism. First, because we have to be more than them. In terms of numbers, we are there. And secondly, because it creates a community and because we are more than that. Between us, we can be a real alternative to capitalism, be an alternative to the system that is every day more and more inhumane. So if I think that you want to find mentors or models or examples of Gitana reference, uh, you've got the Gitana woman who sells you underwear in the market or that sells fruit. They're closer than you think. They're always very, very close. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Institut du Souche, a joint venture with Grazina Kulczyk and ArtStations Foundation CH. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch. That's institut-kunst.ch or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch Institut Sush is part of Museum Sush, an initiative by ArtStations Foundation CH and Grazina Kulczyk. More information on museumsusch.ch. That's museumsusch.ch.
Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Ziesa. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research team, Alice Wilke and Marion Ritzmann. Technical support, Esther Hunziger, Stephen Schoch, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Press and communication, Anna Franke. Copyright by Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW and Institut Usuch, Art Stations Foundation CH 2020.